The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie and it's my great pleasure to be joined today by Scotland's favourite archaeologist. He's more widely published than Indiana Jones, he's got more qualifications than Basil Brown and he's more dashing than Howard Carter. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Dr Murray Cook. <laughs> Hi Tom, thank you very much for that uh, that fulsome praise of, a, of an introduction. Excellent. <laughs> And today we're going to be talking about Murray's five favourite films, the films that he's most enjoyed and which have most inspired him over the years. So without further ado, Murray, what's first on your list? I think that has to be, and and of course I have to offer a disclaimer, that if anybody asks me the same question again next month, the films will change. Um, So that question of the top five is always tricky, but uh, Yo Jimbo uh, by Akira Kurosawa. Um, uh, which of course is is the the famous black and white Japanese film from the fifties about a ronin who um, kind of is up to no good but actually has a heart of gold. That's the interesting thing about Kurosawa, isn't it? It's difficult to overstate just how influential he's been to Hollywood. Films like you know Rashomon, for instance. I mean, yep. they, and uh, the Seven Samurai, particularly, the amount of uh, impact those films have had on Hollywood in terms of structure, in terms of narrative. What is it about this film particularly that you feel has influenced you? Well, I, 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 whether or not it's influenced me or, or so, but I, but I certainly think that um, uh, the, you know the, these these now almost Hollywood stereotypes. Um, you know the, the the lone hero battling against good, the the use of um, you, you know, the the samurai sword. Um, you, he's he's up to no good. The casualty, uh, the the casual nature of violence across towns, the fact that he is being influenced by uh, Ford, and then in turn influences you know, those kind of later spaghetti western Sergio Leone. Uh, so you've actually got. Hollywood reinventing itself, or the Western reinventing itself from its golden era back through, and and of course famously um, with a fistful of dollars, um, Kurosawa wrote to Sergio Leone and said, "You, sir, you have written, you've produced an excellent film. However, it's mine." And then <laughs> there were there were legal proceedings because it's it's uh, a fistful of dollars is, is literally the plot for plot, um, and. Uh, and of course, in turn, based on Dashiell Hammett's uh, Red Harvest, going back to the um, the kind of pulp fiction uh, of the pre-war and American period, so so fantastic stuff. All of them. I mean, you know, avoid um, the Bruce Willis Red Harvest film, though, which which is not very good, but um, you know, a fistful of dollars or or your Jimbo, just fantastic stuff. Yeah, 
I mean, it's it's really incredible actually that cross pollination of different genre because George Lucas was hugely influenced by Kurosawa, and you can see in Star Wars, the initial 1977 Star Wars, just how many of these influences make it into the film. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I I have tried uh, Hidden Castle. Uh, a few times, which um, is, is apparently the, the, the kind of most direct influence for Star Wars, and, and I, I, I am ashamed to confess it, it's beyond me. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Yojimbo and the Seven Samurai, uh, Rashomon, as you say, and even those uh, later films, you know, Ran, get a bit um, a bit beyond me. Throne of Blood, um, the remake of um, Macbeth, is, is very good, but. Um, there we go. And what have you chosen for your second film? Well, um, it has to be a Fritz Lang, uh, and and I was struggling with Metropolis or M, and um, and of course there are multiple versions of Metropolis, given how old it was and how much it was cut around, and and there is the, the most complete version, which I cannot remember when it was when it was. It's the most recent re uh, reissue. That that's excellent. That's well worth watching, but. I think uh, I'm going to say M because while Metropolis feels like a period film that people should watch, M actually feels very close to uh, a modern thriller um, and, and of course one of the very early films that use sound and the sound plays a critical role in the development of the plot and, and actually to give you an idea this is a 1930s film and the uh, Peter Laurie uh, who, who also flee, flees Nazi Germany al- along with Fritz Lang and so many other people um, plays a child killing paedophile and uh, society decides to hunt him down and it's very very strong material um, but the film is the film is amazing um, and, and actually yeah for me possibly the, the, the first modern thriller yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely jaw-dropping performance from Peter Lorre. I mean, a lot of people remember him for his uh, excellent comedic timing in films like Arsenic and Old Lace, but this was a totally different side to him, wasn't it? I mean, really strong stuff. Uh, I mean, he is. I, I mean, just as, um, I suppose, you know, famously, Hitchcock lets you have some level of sympathy for uh, the, the, the killer, in, in, for Bates in, in uh, um, Psycho. So Fritz Lang gives you some level of sympathy for uh, Peter Laurie's character, and and of course the M of the title is M for murderer, um, which actually survives the um, translation from the German, of course, because it's an M that appears. Uh, I'd never thought about that. Now you mentioned, of course, Fritz Lang's incredibly evocative use of music and sound. Um, yeah, it was it was an astonishing find when they discovered that uh, uncut version of the film in Argentina. But uh, I have to ask: I mean, do you prefer the Queen soundtrack, or <laughs> do you prefer? You know, are you a purist? Do you prefer the original? I have. Uh, well, uh, let's let's put it. You you you. Thank you for reminding me. I I, I mean, it's the Argentinian one. Um, I I I I thought it was always worth watching. And uh, it was great, but actually, when you find that extra material and the chase across the cathedral rooftop uh, towards the end, I mean, it's it's just it's amazing. And of course, yeah, I, as you say, th- those iconic images of Maria as the um, as the kind of robot made flesh and and the evilness 
of those, and then the the, the workers marching into the machine uh, as mammon. Um, you know, fantastic stuff. But yeah, no, I, I definitely the the com- as complete a version as possible. Yeah, and it all fits in curiously to a, a much wider tapestry of Eastern European commentary about technology and society and the connections that exist between them. Uh, I think of um, Carol Capek's R.U.R. film, you know, novels like that, you know, that had a huge impact in popular culture and in many ways kind of predated uh, people's views of things like you know, communism and the means of production and things like that. Uh, these were you know, really big topics to be grappling with at that particular historical point. Yes, now he, he's the chap that first comes up with robot. Um, uh, yeah, that I mean that that's uh, that's excellent, and I, and I suppose those themes of alienation uh, find themselves in uh, Kafka uh, and you know the transformation, um, which actually you you just have to keep rereading that. What 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 is going on? But actually, what really is happening? Is he really becoming a big giant tortoise? Uh, uh, tortoise cockroach? Uh, I just imagined him rolling on his back. Um, or is he? Um, is it all in his head? And it, it's just a kind of a, 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 a mental condition. Certainly, the trial. I always wonder about the trial. What exactly is going on in the trial? Uh, however. So Akira Kurosawa and Fritz Lang are you know, both real auteurs and in the, you know, the genuine sense of the word. Is that something that's common to the third film that you've chosen? I I, I do. I, I mean, I I think I like. Um, Thriller, well-made thrillers, well-made action films. So, um, although a bit, a bit of a tangent here, I I think I am going to talk. Well, <laughs> I suppose it's the ultimate. Um, it's the ultimate auteur producing a thriller, which is uh, Orson Welles' Badge of Evil. Now, I can't remember Badge of Evil is the American name or the British name, but famously, uh, prior to the player. Um, this had the longest opening shot, uh, tracking shot of any um, uh, film ever made, and Orson Welles did it as as a bit of a challenge. This was after his peak. He is morbidly obese at this point. He even puts weight on. The film isn't um, isn't as well known as it might be because it features some uh, actually dubious Mexican stereotypes. Um, because the the novel is a is a kind of pulp fiction set on the Mexican border, and Charlton Heston wears blackface or um, makeup to appear Mexican, but that that's uh, that 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 for me is his last hurrah, um, and yeah, you know you can you can look at um, Orson Welles, the Magnificent Ambersons, all those things, and you just see a diminishing talent, um, and. Uh, this is this kind of final, final excellent, and and certainly better than any. I would say better than anything like Chimes of Midnight or F for Fake, or all those latter attempts at Shakespeare, uh, Macbeth, which is flawed. Although, I would always, I would have loved to see uh, the Voodoo Macbeth in Harlem, uh, but I mean nothing survives of that. Um, but you can really that incredible talent to to do theatre production. Then to do War of the Worlds, uh, to do Citizen Kane, um, yeah, absolutely astonishing. 
Yeah, because I mean, Citizen Kane is so often, I think possibly because of the innovation, the technical innovations uh, in that film, so often cited as being one of the most influential mm -hmm. ever made. Um, and as you say, it's, it's an intriguing career that Wells has. I know that certainly in more recent years it's come up for all kinds of uh, analysis. Um, you see, for instance, uh, Richard Linklater's film, Me and Orson Wells, which gives mm -hmm. a very different take on uh, Wells in terms of his stage career. Um, what is it, do you think, makes people continue to be fascinated by him as a, as a director and, a, and also as a performer? Well, I, I think, um, I mean, he, he is a hugely attractive figure um, who continually reinvents himself. Um, but to stand astride so many things um, and also, I, th I think, to be described as, as having made the best film ever made in his 20s, uh, people want to knock him off that pedestal. Is it really the best film ever made? I, I think Rear Window occasionally knocks knocks it off its number. Is it the New York uh, the New York critics rating? Uh, I think Rear Window has has jumped up ahead of that a little bit. Hmm. But um, you know, just he transforms himself. He throws himself. But it, equally, he is so flawed. I mean that that. Um, that eating habit, are you kind of vaguely thinking about um, <clears throat> Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, mm. where you've, you've got this incredible individual just, just gone to seed, but yet still with glimmers of genius, um, although I, I personally think Marlon Brando's over, overrated, and uh, that final scene in uh, Apocalypse Now is, uh, is as much due to... Um, uh, the editing of the director, yeah, it's all down to Coppola, um, and, and I don't think anybody could have that nearly came in Apocalypse now uh, in the top ten. But actually, I'm so confused by which version <laughs> of the film that it got bumped. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned Rear Window, another fantastic film. It's a film I really rate. Actually, I think it's, it stands up there with Hitchcock's best. Um, but when you talk about the technical innovations, of course, you always think of that shot of Jimmy Stewart tumbling out of that window. Um, yes. Something that really hadn't been done before then. Uh, and it's, it's just so striking. Even now, you know, it still has that freshness about it. Yes. I, I mean, I think, um, I think there's a problem with Hitchcock in that he became too polished, too... Ca you know, you, you're kind of wading through so much of Cary Grant and... and I mean, it is Cary Grant that comes to mind rather than Stuart, and I think probably um, North by Northwest. But actually, put aside those period issues and the improbability that anybody had Cary Grant's accent or that anybody could be Cary Grant, um, and, and these are incredible films. I mean, technically polished, um, although I suppose I have to confess... Um, I, I uh, always have a problem with Hitchcock because I don't like what he did to the 39 Steps and I much prefer the novel than yes. <laughs> his adaptation. Uh, however, there we go. Okay. And moving on to your fourth film, what have you got for us? I think this is um, John Wayne and uh, uh, John Ford at their finest, The Searchers. Mm. Um, now, um, I think John Wayne is a hugely controversial figure. Um, and um, you know, I, I don't think it's too controversial to call him a draft, a draft dodger while people like Capra and Jimmy Stewart and Audie Murphy were actually out fighting. He, is, um, he, he kind of shied out of that and um, feathered his career. But um, 
you know, I don't, th I don't think he, he he's ever been finer. As as to be clear, an absolutely horrendous character in the Searchers. All I mean, this is a, a racist bigot who intends to very clearly um, kill his. Uh, now, is it his niece? I think it's his niece. Um, and not to give too much too much of the plot away, but that that burning hatred. Um, you know when they uncover the um, the Indian grave, and he shoots the corpse's eyes out so that the spirit will wander the plane. You know, wander without rest. Um, but everything that John Ford had made that by that point, and uh, and of course, John Ford by this point was, and I'm going to say objectively the best ever director. I think he'd won the most best director Oscars of anybody. And I'm uh, perhaps Spielberg is coming close uh, by this point. So you you have an art house director firmly uh, of the left. If you think how green was my valley and um, the um, the Steinbeck, the Grapes of Wrath adaptation. Um, uh, I mean these are these are incredibly uh, left wing films, full of passion and 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 anger about the the plight of the working people. And then you get um, this fiercely Republican uh, kind of, I mean, it's, it sums up how Texas views itself. You, you're going to get things done. You can't rely on the state. You have to do things. Uh, you have to take a gun for yourself and sort out the problems. Although, of course, at the end, famously, um, that final scene where he walks out through the door, there is no place for John Wayne's character in the family home. He's done uh, the dirty work and, um, you know, he has to go. You know, it's a funny thing because so many of Ford's films and also films starring John Wayne um, have been re-evaluated over the years and critically reappraised. I think of films like The Sons of Katie Elder, Three Godfathers, True Grit. But The Searchers has pretty much always retained that classic status, hasn't it? It's always mm. been seen as a, a real critical triumph. Well, I mean, it's at, at, a, at a very superficial level, it's great fun. You know, there is a, there is a hero, there are villains who are villainous. And, um, you know, that kind of classic... Um, I mean, I'm old enough to have played Cowboys and Indians in, in the streets... Um, good triumphs over evil but there is a nuance to that and and, and actually the story isn't one-sided and um and of course based on based on a certain extent um real events but just you know that landscape those characters um and and also I, I, there is a flaw with uh, Ford's technical direction. He always has people going out the wrong side and coming back in the other, <laughs> which comes a lot in uh, in the Searchers. And it's uh, but you just can't uh, you can't beat it. And and equally, I think for uh, a certain generation, from my my father and grandfather's generation, John Wayne for for warts and all is just that. That's who people in Scotland wanted to be uh, my dad always talks about uh, when he saw quiet man when he saw when he saw the quiet man in the cinema there's a scene where uh, a uh, john wayne throws money away because there's the dowry and, he, and once he finally gets it he throws it away 
and, and people were howling in the audience. Don't do that. But then equally, they were watching uh, the cigarettes. He never smoked a cigarette down to the filter. He, he threw them away. <laughs> and people were kind of just, goodness me. <laughs> and what have you chosen for your fifth and final film? This is uh, Coen Brothers' uh, Miller's Crossing, uh, which I mean, I think just about everything the Coen Brothers does is worth watching. Uh, there are probably some exceptions. Uh, the Man Who Wasn't There, the remake of The Lady Killers, um, are kind of interesting if you like the Coen Brothers. Um, but um, for me, the, the Miller's Crossing, which is set in a in a feud amongst uh, Irish, uh, Irish and Jewish gangsters, I think, um, with a, a, a kind of magnificent central performance by uh, Tom Tom Finney. Um, I mean, that's just in, and Gabriel Byrne. I mean, you can't go too much if you've not seen it. But the the film plays. And then there is, and at the conclusion, you reevaluate everything you thought you were learning about uh, Gabriel Byrne's character, and uh, it, uh, in kind of the same way as the Usual Suspects with Kaiser Soze, um, uh, I just just amazing, I just but very funny, uh, as all Coen Brother films are, but very thrilling, um, and um, I, and well done in the score that comes through that. Um, I, I, I mean, I repeated all. All of the films are are worth repeated watching, but I think Miller's Crossing is the one I would, I would continue to watch. Mm. I mean, that's the amazing thing about the Coen Brothers, isn't it? No two films ever alike. Um, you get films like Fargo, for instance, mm. still impressing people now because of the, the structural and narrative sophistication of it. Um, I always remember Barton Fink from the yes. 90s, and which is a, a really interesting um, kind of ex- exploration of the writing process and what's involved in it. Um, so would you say this is their finest work, or certainly does it stand amongst? I, 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 I think it's their, their finest, um, for, for me. Um, you know, but then... Uh, where where would you go? That they're, they're they're all worth watching. Um, you know, even um, the one about the hula hoop, the Hudsucker Proxy, which gets remorselessly slagged off. Um, I think the Hudsucker Proxy is is worth reading. Obviously, um, the Big Lebowski is the one people rave about, and the Big Lebowski is excellent. But um, I, I think possibly because I like those kind of gangster films I like uh, films where there are loners bending breaking rules then Miller's Crossing fits into a kind of personal uh, preference for me within that so if there's one thing really that unites all of these films I think it's very strong um, directorial voices I mean they all seem to have come from uh, filmmakers who have a very very clear idea of what they're doing and you know a, a great sense of style and bringing those stories to life. Oh, d- d- definitely. Uh, but I, I think equally that um, you're not going too far down that hauteur line. Um, I always remember, um, and you might have seen this, Tom, very few people have, um, Martin Scorsese's um, thesis film. Uh, what's that called? Quartet, mm-hmm. um, which features the big shave. And, and I re- 
I remember watching it and I go, why am I actually watching this? I can, <laughs> I can be watching something fun. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I have watched a, a fair number of, you know, films that you feel that you should watch, be the, you know, Griffiths' Birth of a Nation, uh, which is, is very hard to watch and, and horrific, but kind of from uh, that filmic technique, uh, you know. Um, but... I think you want a strong narrative, you want a plot that makes sense and as you know, that kind of material to a gifted director and, and and Orson Welles, you know, going back to the Badge of Evil, uh, again, which I think there are three different versions of that, uh, there was his original cut, the studio release cut and then he left extensive notes and then there are two, I think there are two further versions, <laughs> depending which cut you want to go, but uh, but they're all uh, they're all incredible, and actually, you know, material that was probably fit for the bin with with Wells's um, Wells's direction is is incredible, and and a tour de force for a man who has a part, who had by that point apparently been uh, washed up for a decade, if not more. Well, it's certainly been a, a really interesting uh, travelogue of various different Hollywood styles, people like Kurosawa with very independent voices, um, truly independent takes on what filmmaking can can produce. Um, so thank you very much, Murray, for having shared with us um, such an eclectic range of really fascinating films. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thanks for asking. It's always, always good to, to elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us today. I hope that you'll join us again soon. would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.